Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is up? Welcome back to another episode of First of the Floor. We have a very special episode with a very special guest today. It's Caitlin Cooper from Basketball. She wrote one of the best basketball blogs and Patreons out there. Very smart basketball mind. I'm not sure what she's doing talking to us today, but uh, Caitlin, how are you? Yeah, I'm good. I'm, I'm excited anytime people want me to talk into a microphone about basketball. I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Amazing. And of course, the legend himself, Wayne Spoonie. How are you, mate? I'm doing great, Jake. I'm just, you know, going to turn this into 45 minutes on Aaron Neesmith. So that's <laughs> kind of the plan. Let's do it. And that's what the people want. And that's, that's right, what they're yeah. going to get. I know. Yeah. We've got some, we've got some Caitlin fans in the chat already. So um, yeah, this is exciting. Um, we'll, we'll jump straight into it. FIBA, the World Cup, kind of in the rear view here, but it was a very paces heavy World Cup, Caitlin, obviously Halliburton, Celtics legend, Daniel Tice, um, bringing home the gold medal, which we loved to see. Um, do you typically get around the World Cup or are you more invested in it, involved with analyzing it due to the, the Pacers-centric uh, angles? I mean, I certainly dabble. I watched Eurobasket last summer as well. Germany was looking good even back then last summer. So I had a feeling that they would do well in the World Cup as well. And the prior World Cup that several Celtics played in, Miles Turner was playing. So I guess it's a little yeah, bit of both. That's right. Yeah. Nice. Um, so, what 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 are your thoughts on kind of FIBA FIBA basketball, the World Cup in general? Did like, did you enjoy this year's tournament? I don't know how you guys landed, just from a Team USA perspective, but I found a lot of the discourse to be fairly irritating. I feel like because the American team has so such a deep pool of players to choose from. I feel like it could be the original dream team in their primes. And there would be people like, why didn't that guy get picked? Like, why was this person not here? And oftentimes, like, I'll watch a game. I'll watch them lose to Lithuania or I'll watch them lose to Germany. And the people who are being brought up, I'm like, okay, how, like, no offense to Trey Young. Trey Young is a fantastic player. But what, how is Trey Young going to fix what went wrong in that game against <laughs> Germany? Like, yes. Yeah, and I, I mean, I'm kind of a little poisoned on FIBA. I think last World Cup, or maybe it was two ago, there was four Celtics on the team, and it was like the most dis. I think we came in eighth or something like right. that. So, yeah, 
I'm with you. It, the, the expect it's like the opposite of soccer, where it's like we made the knockout rounds. This is amazing. I love it. Let's call it football now. It's like you better win the gold and you better win every single game by thirty points, or this is a huge disappointment. Uh, and that's but, a great way uh, to put it, right? Because when when Team USA wins, no one cares. But when Team USA loses, yeah. it's the worst thing ever. <laughs> hmm. Yeah, and like my experience is is interesting just because. So I'm half Australian, half American. And so the Australian basketball, like the boomers, everybody's really hyped. Everybody really cares every year about the boomers, World Cup, Olympics, um, training camp, everything. And then the US, the, the roster comes out. Everybody's like, if you go back and look at everybody's tweets from when this roster was released. Everybody was like, oh, this this roster's like sneaky, sneaky stacked. They're easy gonna take take gold, just completely disregarding the the years of chemistry and experience that all these other countries have. Uh, and then it flips the other way around, being like, not this team's trash. It was the it was the D team, apparently. Um, and then I see a tweet with the A, the best A, B, C, and D teams. Um and I'm like, one of the one of the factors that's always left out is like, well, what if Kawhi and Paul George and all these guys like part of having a really good international team is having people bought in year in, year out to create yes. this like chemistry um from from tournament to tournament across like you know, four years between World Cups, four years between Olympics, which the US is just never gonna have um for a variety of reasons. So yeah, the discourse is just a bit of a nightmare for a variety of reasons. And we had this the the Molotov cocktail of um, Noah Lyles chiming in halfway through about being uh, world champions as well, just to make it really fun, just so we really couldn't actually talk about basketball uh, on this one. Yeah, and sort of uh, let's a little bit of brass tacks and we'll bring it back to the Pacers a little bit here. So a lot you spoke of the discourse, how it was kind of annoying. Halliburton was like a big part of some of that discourse, actually. And a lot of people, probably a good sign for Pacers fans and yourself, wanted him to start, wanted him to get more minutes. They looked a lot better, a lot more fluid offensively when he played. Were you on that bandwagon? And my guess is yes, but. I actually was not. Uh, oh, interesting. No, I, I was not because I felt like this particular iteration of the roster, their strength was going to be their depth and their strength. I think everybody knew going into it, this is not a team that's going to win the possession war on the glass. They're going to struggle mm-hmm. with mismatches. So being able to run that second five out there and know that that was going to be a unit that really pushed the pace and got out and run, I felt like that was going to be an advantage against other countries second groups of five so i was i was perfectly fine with them leaving that grouping alone as it turned out they did end up making the one shift with josh hart moving into the starting unit and brandon ingram moving back until he ended up getting sick and sitting out but no the the place where i did differ i don't usually have a lot of rotation and substitution quibbles but when they got into that game against germany i felt like the lesson from the friendly against germany was that the closing lineup with halliburton reeves edwards bridges and jaron jackson jr that that was the main takeaway so that you could have bridges on Schroeder and you could have mm-hmm. Edwards defending Franz Wagner. They moved Tyrese Halliburton actually onto Daniel Tice because a lot of times like he's just better in that aerial ace role. You don't want him doing screen navigation. Hence what we saw when he slipped and fell and Obst made that three in the, in the elimination game. <laughs> yeah. You, you don't really want that. So I was, they didn't get to that group in that entire game until there was four minutes left to play. They end up cutting the lead down to what was it? One or two points before Obst mm-hmm. made that three. I felt like they needed to get to that group quicker. And then I kind of like what you said there about, you know, not having the continuity and the chemistry. I felt like that was a big, takeaway from that game as well because I think a lot of times people think that switching is the more complicated defense and in all reality switching is the simpler thing to do 
yep. it's, it's easier to communicate and do so. Like if you can't stay in front of Schroeder, they were just switching everything. And then my frustration with that was like, okay, so maybe you don't feel comfortable doing a hedge and recover to keep Reeves out of that action or to keep Halliburton out of that action. But they weren't doing a lot to protect the mismatches. Like they're getting at those guys in the post and there's no scram switching, yeah. no triple switching. Like why are you just willfully giving up that switch? I still think that was the best unit to go to and finish with. But then also like Tyrese is in an off ball role and Anthony Edwards is playing point. So it kind of feels like at that point, like if you're not going to get out and run with Tyrese and he's not going to be running offense and he's going to be somewhat of a defensive liability for you, you're kind of just, you know, maximizing his weaknesses and minimizing his strengths at that point in time. So, you know, I had some quibbles in the game against Germany, I will say. (laughs) Yes. The switch everything defense needed. They needed to try something else. I think that was definitely my my big takeaway at at some point yeah switch everything defenses work with like a very few you know sets of personnel like the Celtics 2022 finals team like you got to have certain guys that are able to to switch it and then you've got to be you actually have to be very connected as well to to execute those scram switches to know that when Halliburton's on personnel x y and z we're switching those ones but not you know, guys, A, B. And so to build that chemistry across a tournament like this is, is, is really, really hard. But, um, yeah, that's interesting on, on the Halliburton thing. Um, I, that, that you, you weren't part of the get Halliburton in the starting lineup. Even if it wasn't the starting lineup, I do agree that getting him, uh, in the closing lineup would have, would have been good just because of the, of the stagnation that it felt like it happened at the end of a few games, which is just also, that's kind of what happens in, in FIBA as well. Um, but the, but the big question. Daniel Tice, Daniel Tice, I mean, he took down, he was a key part of taking down my boomers. Um, Why is Daniel Tice not playing for the Indiana Pacers? Because he's he's still very good. I'm convinced that he's still very good. Um, is it, it's an, Obviously, you've got Turner and Isaiah Jackson. Is there just no, no space in the rotation for Tice? Right. So last year, I think it was kind of a matter of context. They entered that season and were very much putting it out there that, you know, this season isn't so much going to be about wins and losses. It's going to be about development. And as it turns out, um, Tice did very well with Germany in Eurobasket. They won bronze. And when he came back, he ended up needing to have a procedure. He didn't come back and wasn't available then until February. And when he was available, they were playing him as the backup five. And then even for a few games after the trade deadline, they were also playing him as the backup five, which led me to believe that, you know, if all of their options were available, maybe that is where they would have leaned. And then it became like a rotation carousel after the trade deadline was over where Jalen Smith started a game and then or would come off the bench and be the backup five. Then Isaiah Jackson would be the backup five. And they were basically just time sharing a position. So I think it was more about where the trajectory of the Pacers were. Now this year they have more expectations. They kind of want to make a push for the playoffs. I do think that of the options that Daniel Tice is the most dependable person that they could put out there. It's just a matter of how much do you still believe in the upside of Isaiah and Jalen and then, you know, how do you feel about Tice playing in a more up-tempo scheme where they play more random, they really play fast and transition? And also, what does that mean for the development of maybe Jairus Walker? Because I think the strength of Daniel Tice more than anything, and you guys know this, is that he sets solid screens. He's very good at running handoffs and getting to the next action. I think those are also some things that they would want to see from Jairus Walker, their rookie in the backup four spot. So do they infringe on each other a little bit? It's kind of where I see it. but. I, I, Daniel Tice is still very good. We've seen that in, with, with the Germany team. He's still, he's still a dependable big that could be in a, in an NBA rotation for sure. 
Yeah, I mean, is do you think? I mean, the Pacers are really young. I'm an Isaiah Jackson guy. I really like what he brings. I think like with just his insane athleticism. Um, he doesn't have to be particularly good at basketball to be like a decent role player. But so is Tyson the cards? Like, do you think they'll trade him? And can we beg of you not to trade him to the Miami Heat if he is traded? Like, that's the one team. Please do not do that. in your power. <laughs> Indeed. Because I know for a fact that if he goes to the Heat, then they're winning the title. And it's going to be the worst. Or is it Buchanan? Can, is that the GM, Buchanan? <laughs> call him yeah. up. Could you call call in a favor, Caitlin, please? That's enough. My guess is, yeah, that they'll probably be looking for things there. He has a team yeah. option, which I can't imagine. That they would pick up because it is a little bit pricier, and because they yeah. do have so many. I mean, Jarris can also swing and play some five. He did a little bit of that at summer league. I mean, I think the thing with Isaiah, it's like whoever they pick to fill that spot, it's almost less about that player, at least from my perspective, and what it means for the other players in that lineup. So, like for instance, if Andrew Nemhard's going to be their backup point guard next year, which I'm that's still up in the air with what they're going to do with TJ McConnell as well. Andrew and Isaiah play really well together as a pick and roll combination. So then that makes sense. But Isaiah doesn't shoot threes. He barely shoots outside of 10 feet. So like for Jairus Walker's case, if you want him to be in the short roll, if you want him to be doing more DHO stuff, then it might make more sense for it to be Jalen Smith because Jalen Smith doesn't shoot the ball well, but he does at least shoot. So it's kind of like, you know, having to move a Rubik's cube around to get everything right for all the people who are in that unit. So we'll see where they land. Yeah. I do think when you're talking about developing a bunch of different guys like Tice, like it it is valuable to have veterans around that know how to play basketball and can fit around different lineups and different guys. And having a guy like Tice that can play with Isaiah or play with Jairus Walker or, or whatever, I think is obviously valuable, but I do think that maybe when it gets to the deadline that they're like, that Tice can be a guy that can like the Warriors, like, can, could, like, could they make a move for someone like Tice, like to build that front court depth? That would, that would be a disaster for me as well. Um, just to see Tice to go to like any good team, just because I know there's, this, there's been this thing, Caitlin, at least this is what we think that players keep leaving Boston and then the hype, on them finally gets accepted or like they're like they're good at possible. It's like the Marcus Smart and Grant Williams thing now. Now everybody's like, which I agree with. I think Marcus Smart's going to fit great on Memphis, but I've been hearing that Marcus Smart's overrated for like the last eight years. And I know that once Daniel Tice is on the Warriors or the Heat, it's going to be like, how do the Warriors and Heat's culture do this? That's like, we've been, <laughs> yeah. we've been saying totally this. What, that is exactly what will happen. Okay. 100%. <laughs> oh, man. Alex, you, you, you think you think it's time? All right, um, for the ad read or knee Smith. Oh, wait, we should we should probably let's let's do the ad read first. Let's yeah. do the ad read first. Yeah, we'll this is yeah we'll set the stage here. New FanDuel customers can bet five dollars and get two hundred in bonus bets, guaranteed. Plus, all customers who bet five dollars will get one hundred dollars off NFL Sunday ticket from YouTube at YouTube TV. Snap into action this NFL season with FanDuel, America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets guaranteed when you place a $5 bet. That's $200 in bonus bets, win or lose. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to get in on the action. The app is so easy to use. There's a wide range of betting options, including spreads, player props, over-unders, and more. So visit FanDuel.com Boston and kick off the NFL season. FanDuel, official partner of the NFL. Massachusetts, 21 plus and present in mass. Hope is here. First 
online real money wager only $10 first deposit required bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt restrictions apply see terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com gambling helpline ma.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support play it smart from the start gamesensema.com or call 1-800-GAM-1234 all right last week i handed out minus four and a half cardinals Giants, um, the, the Giants went down 28 to zero or whatever. And then they came back and technically won by three, but obviously I missed on that one. We're going to the one thing I think the Patriots might have left, and that's a, to win games against really bad quarterbacks. Patriots minus two and a half versus the Jets. If they can't do it next week, I think that might be it for, for the fellas. But, um, <laughs> yeah, it's right. over. It's over. Yeah. Um, okay, what we've all been waiting for, and by all I mean just me, where so I I have been I, I do a little bit of writing, and one of like the only thing that people have ever latched onto that I've written was about Aaron Neesmith, and it was called the Neesmith Manifesto after his rookie year, and I was basically like, this dude is actually good and should start. He had kind of an up and down year, but I've been following him closely with the Pacers. I thought he had a pretty solid year, like probably projecting to be like a decent bench player. Where are Pacers fans with Aaron Neesmith? I don't know how many people know that Aaron was kind of an unsung hero last year because the Pacers went on a seven game road trip and Jalen Smith started the season as the starting power forward. And it became kind of evident on that West Coast road trip, like this isn't going to work anymore because teams were really cross-matching their fives onto Jalen. So like Sabonis would be guarding Jalen, Nurkic would be guarding Jalen. Then it was marginalizing Miles Turner and they were switching everything and their half-court offense really kind of stagnated during that stretch. So when they came back home, it was like, we got to find a different answer at the four. This is a very small roster, lots of guards. And lo and behold, Aaron Neesmith becomes the starting the starting yes. four. So the Pacers are playing like eight guards a night. Like the Raptors have vision six, nine, and the Pacers have like vision six, five. <laughs> yeah. like, they're yeah. playing like everybody's yeah. smaller than six, five. And then there's, there's these games where you're going to watch Aaron Neesmith and it's like, okay, you know, for example, towards the back end of the season when Tyrese was no longer playing, like they were trying to give Benedict Mather and tougher assignments to challenge him on defense. So they're up in Toronto and he's trying to defend Fred Van Vliet. And it's like, OK, his screen navigation isn't really working. We're going to have to switch something up. And a lot of times what they would end up doing is, OK, Neesmith's going to defend Pirtle. That way, when Pirtle sets the screen, you can switch Neesmith out to the ball and we're going to put Miles Turner on a low usage wing and use him more as a roamer. That kind of became their defensive scheme. So you You'd watch games where it'd be like, okay, they can't do anything against Joel Embiid in the post. We're going to use Neesmith and he's going to front him. Now, did this go well? Not really, but like you're watching <laughs> him out there fighting with everything that he has. And it's like, he deserves some role player award for this. Like something yeah. to be awarded. Like, I, I don't want to take anything away from Neesmith because I think that that was the type of guy that he was kind of coming in that we did not expect was this just like this energy it, it was it was it was the Marcus Smart energy with a little less control uh, to to it. Like we, I don't know if the nickname carried into Indiana, but he got na- nicknamed Crash by Marcus Smart. Yeah, just because he he we we love him for the the effort that he put on every single second he was on the court. It was he was on a ten, and that honestly helped him get on the court uh, down the stretch of of his rookie season. Like Brad mm-hmm. really appreciated that, and Celtics fans, especially basketball fans in general, love a role player that's just like putting everything out there. Very you know TJ McConnell esque, and that's kind of the part of, the, of his game that was not in the scouting report that I was following of him with him coming into the league was like this. This he's really athletic. He's got a really advanced body for. 
you know, we talk about a lot of dimensions on this on this show. Neesmith's dimensions for his for his age, like he's this guy, this guy's very, very strong. And I love that I he's been able to kind of scale that up to, yeah. Is he going to be out of front, Joel Embiid? But you know, he saw Marcus Smart giving it a go. I love that um, <laughs> he he was he's able to to kind of carry that over. But yeah, that 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 for Neesmith, I think he has a relatively high defensive floor just because of how athletic um, he is and how much effort he he gives and how much he's willing to get on the boards. Yeah, I mean, he became they're starting him with Nemhard and Buddy Heald and Tyrese Halliburton, and because of what some of Tyrese and Buddy's limitations were, Neesmith and Nemhard were generally taking the top assignments. And like I joke and say that it didn't work with Embiid, but in all honesty, they tried everything else that night. They tried double teaming, sometimes triple teaming. They tried single coverage with Miles. They tried zone, and the fronting was probably the best option of many (laughs) bad options. Let's go, Aaron. But like he is a guy that's like going to run through a brick wall. But at the same time, like I like that Marcus Smart nicknamed him Crash because I think when I looked it up this morning that he shooting fouls per 100 possessions. I think he (laughs) was the leader among wings, among non-bigs. I don't think anyone averaged more than Aaron Nismith. So he can kind of struggle to finish stops without fouling. That's that, that is not kind of shocking issue and probably why the Pacers don't long term see him as a part of the starting lineup. Although I do think that they really did value the fact that he's willing to do whatever it takes to win games. He's kind of like, like they played the magic and he had a clutch rebound at the end of the game and ended up getting a putback that ended up kind of sealing a win for them. So like he is capable of coming in with those types of plays that, you know, the intangibles very, very from the Marcus smart mold, I would say. Yeah. So like, Definitely, Pacers haven't locked onto him as a potential untouchable as Spoonie, I think, had got to. Um, <laughs> it's me and Aaron's parents are the only three people who have him as untouchable. Because so this is this is the last year of his contract, right? And yeah. And he's he's unrestricted. Like, is that correct? No, he's an RFA. Yeah, he's coming. Oh, up he'll be, oh so, so, yeah, right, of course. So he'll be an RFA um, next season. Do you think the Pacers are going to be? looking to to kind of bring him back like do we have to you know get a, a third Aaron Neesmith jersey potentially um after this season yeah I mean I think it really depends somewhat on how they view the situation with TJ McConnell and Andrew Nemhard because when you look at the bench lineup if they continue to play which a lot of times they did play with more than one point guard on the floor last year if they continue to play TJ and Andrew together and Jarris Walker is going to be the backup four and then whichever one of these backup fives ends up winning winning that crown there's not necessarily going to be space because Buddy Heald's probably also going to be coming off the bench. So there's not going to be a spot for Aaron in the 10-man rotation. That being said, if it were me personally, I'd like to see Andrew get that spot as just solo backup point guard to be playing more out of ball screens next year if he's not going to be part of the starting lineup. At that point, then there will be space for Aaron Neesmith to be the backup three alongside Andrew and Buddy. So um, I think he's still good enough to be a rotation or a role player. It just depends for the Pacers because they have so many guys who can be rotation players, which ones they're going to use and which ones they aren't. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I think, I think through his first three years of his, of his career, I feel pretty confident that he can at least, you know, stick in an NBA rotation for, for years to come. But uh, all right. So moving on to, Brogdon, revisiting the Malcolm Brogdon trade. Uh, people in the chat, uh, Brogdon's made a little bit of headlines. Um, Indeed, he has. Which, by no fault of his own, Brogdon actually hasn't mm. done anything. It's just been Gary Washburn, specul- just like did people people talk about the aggregators being bad. This is like the aggregators at their finest, just like Legion Hoops reporting like Gary Washburn just speculating on his podcast regardless 
My first question I have for you, though, before we get there, is will Malcolm Brogdon throw a lob this season to Robert Williams? Because I'm pretty sure he ignored Rob Williams every single time he was open under the rim, which is just a funny way of asking, can Malcolm Brogdon be a slightly better playmaker next season? Because I think Celtics fans were expecting him to be a bit more of a pure point guard. I think we've learned late last year, he was a pure scorer where people have been theorizing that may have been role related, like it was six man of the year, you're coming off the bench, we want you to score. That's going to be your job. Uh, Marcus Marco is out the window. There's definitely a bit of a playmaking void on the roster. People are hoping that it could be Malcolm Brogdon. I'm not super confident just from what I saw last season, but where do you, where are you on Malcolm Brogdon's playmaking? You know, it's funny when that trade happened, I tweeted out something along the lines of Malcolm Brogdon is a 1.75 positionally and that he's more mm-hmm. of an off ball secondary playmaker than he is a point guard. And I think that's what the Pacers found out with time. And I don't think I even fully realized it until I started seeing Tyrese Halliburton run the same actions at the same position. And it was like when I got glasses for the first time and I was like, Oh, that's what that's supposed to look like (laughs) when, when somebody else is running it. So like, I like what you just said there about Robert Williams, because there was times that season before that trade happened where Malcolm Brogdon's running point. And it felt like there was like the Pacers had a weird allergy to finding Sabonis on the short roll or finding him as the role man. And that was really kind of affecting their offense at times. And I had a whole clip package shared the night that they made that trade and Tyrese was coming over and being like, they weren't even fully using what Sabonis can do because so often like a pocket pass was apparently like unable to be made in a lot of these situations where it seems like that should have been a thing that happened. So like in Brogdon's case, I think he's capable of running offense. He's a two guard who can run offense, but I think it's more about him finding the open man than necessarily passing people open. I don't know that he necessarily makes other people better, but he can orchestrate and run the offense. But that's why I think what his role with Boston was suited him so well is because he took a step backward in order to take a step forward. When you can get him off the ball and get him, getting those secondary drives and get downhill because he is such a force when he, when he gets his shoulder into guys and gets in that situation. I just think it was overall better for him not to be doing as much in the pick and roll and be doing more in spot up situations. He got more open threes than what he was getting with the Pacers. And hopefully the hope with that, at least for me, because I kept making the point for the two years that he was there is that he's carrying this very heavy load, especially in the Bjorkman season playing way too many minutes that, you know, maybe if you can reduce his role, he'll be healthy by the end of the season. And unfortunately, so that close. Exactly <laughs> yeah. Out, but um, that's kind of part of the the package with Brogdon. It seems like he yeah. always has an injury popping up of some sort. We needed yeah. like one more month, Malcolm. So close, dude. Like, yeah, that that forearm injury, and that's I guess ironic a little bit is that it wasn't a lower leg right injury, but you know, injury prone guys are injury prone, and. Uh, that unfortunately popped up at the worst possible time. Like I think they probably get through the Sixers series without Brogdon, but they needed someone to make a shot so, so, so badly in their Miami series. And Brogdon was having one of the best shot making seasons of anybody in the league and like of his yeah. career. So they, they desperately needed that. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you in that. I'm not super confident that Brogdon's going to just going to all of a sudden be making these, these reads that he wasn't necessarily last season, just because like, there are obvious reads to have made if if that was the type of player that he was. Like most of you, like the reason he has a low turnover, um, low turnovers to me is because he's puts his head down, he's got a tight handle and he gets a shot up. And if he gets lost, he just kind of like 
does one of those like jumps and throws the ball deep into like towards half court and Jason Tatum goes and gets it and then they they take a shot from there outside of the most famous turnover against Philly in game one, which will keep coming back up in my brain. Anyway, I thought you were about to run it and I was going to say, oh God, please don't do that, Jake. But yeah, and uh, that's also why he shot like 50% from zero to five feet last year, which is absolutely atrocious because I like he just, I was just expecting a little bit more of him kind of reading the defense and, and finding open guys because like people are wide open because he does have so much like on ball gravity because he's such a good scorer. And it's sometimes like, dude, the corner, it's right there. Um, but so we're obviously we just had one season with Brogdon. It was all peachy keen. It was great. Six man of the year. Um, you you in, in you all in Indy had a couple more seasons with him. So, you know, we've got this news story coming out about how there might be animosity. Like from your experience, just being around Malcolm Brogdon, covering him, like, do you think he would be that? I know they're kind of asking an unfair speculative question here, but do you think he could bring any animosity into the season. Like, is he the type of guy that maybe that would show out on the court? Um, or do you think he'll just be a hundred percent business, nothing to worry about? I think he'll probably mainly be professional. I mean, I know that there was some stuff that followed him along the lines of, you know, he wasn't super happy with the Nate McMillan style of offense. And when Nate Bjorken took over, he was very outspoken about like, we have this smart X's and O's coach. And then midway through the year, it was like, Oh, that, that died down quite a bit. We made a huge mistake. Yeah. (laughs) And in Malcolm Brogdon's defense, like I think both of his quibbles with both coaches were probably accurate, but a lot of that kind of got pegged on him. So it's a, it's a different scenario. I will say from the, just, unrelated two different players but i will say from the pacers perspective last summer the pacers went out and gave deandre in an offer sheet that the phoenix suns ended up matching i felt at the time you just went out and signed a potential upgrade over miles turner miles turner's entering a contract year this is going to go very poorly how are you going to unring this bell he ends up going on a podcast with adrian wojanowski effectively like negotiating his own trade value with the los <laughs> angeles lakers and lo and behold we get to february and they do a rene- renegotiation extension like everything that could have gone right went right for them to yeah. both you know end up in the same place at the same time. So sometimes there can be hurt feelings. And I think sometimes you can still mend those fences anyways. I mean, famously too, like LaMarcus Aldridge with the Spurs requested a trade and they were able to fix that and he ended up staying put. So um, I don't, I don't think you can always take a lot away from this. And I do think I saw from that report too, that like, I think that Gary had said, like, I haven't talked to him since this has happened. So he might not even be in that same state of mind currently. Yeah. I think there's a few, that that is a fantastic Example, like using that Miles Turner thing, like they literally attempted to trade for his replacement. And in the, on the Celtics side of things, yes, there was a trade that almost went through, but then the Celtics turned around and traded the literal the longest tenured Celtic on the roster, the heart and soul of the Boston Celtics organization. So I understand like, you know, you're not wanting to be traded, but like to see where things ended up, um, it's hard to be, to show like too many hard feelings when they're, you know, smart was the one that went out the door. And when it's the summer, you know, you can, there's all this stuff kind of floating around, even, you know, go, for Malcolm going into the season, he's like maybe a little bit upset. The ball start bouncing. You get back with the teammates. You start, you start playing, you start living your life. You're getting paid $20 million a year to play basketball. Like life on the Boston Celtics is going to be pretty good once the season yeah. starts. Like he's going to be having a good role. They're going to be winning games. Um, I don't, I really don't think it's going to be 
much of an issue at all. Like if anything, he might be playing more minutes, assuming he's healthy to start the season. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think this is absolutely a non story. And this is the quintessential September 17th, uh, type of story to come out. So, um, yeah. All right. O'Shea Preset. Disappointingly, didn't get to see him in FIBA, uh, with a knee injury. Um, I would say probably the, player that the Celtics have brought in that people are the most down on relative like no one was no one's no one's the people that are high on Brissett aren't necessarily saying he's going to be this you know high impact guy that's going to change the title odds for them but there are people that have brought him in that people that aren't super high on, on what he's going to be able to bring to the Celtics so what how do you see Brissett kind of fitting in on in Boston Probably the best view of what he can be is actually his career game that he played against the Celtics two seasons ago when he made yes. like the six threes. And in part, when you look back at that, I think both of those games were illuminating because when he played that game, he was getting the assignment with Robert Williams guarding him or Daniel Tice at the four where that person's really roaming off. And then, you know, if you get more than you bargain for, you get more than you bargain for. And in that game, they did like O'Shea made six threes. He ended up taking Daniel Tice off the dribble in the corner. Like he played a very strong game. And then they end up going to Boston. And for whatever reason, I can't remember what the circumstances were, but the Pacers ended up starting Terry Taylor and Goga Batadze in that game with O'Shea at the three. And because of the change in lineups where O'Shea is no longer at the four, now he's being guarded by Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and things look a little bit different in the light when you're not like when you're not the piece that they're willing to live with if you go off so that's a bit of it I think the biggest thing with O'Shea is his three really does need to fall because I just I'm not convinced that his finishing is going to come around like for him it becomes he takes off way too far away from the basket he doesn't get a lot of elevation off of one foot and then everything becomes like a hanging bank shot like he can't really adjust midair against verticality so I'm not convinced the finishing is going to get there. So he is a lot more dependent on the games when his three falls. And sometimes he, he goes through stretches. I know the Pacers made a tweak to his shot for a period of time where that seemed to be ironing out the shot a little bit better when he was playing with Sabonis before Sabonis got moved. Those two had pretty good chemistry where he would play around post-ups and he is a very instinctual cutter. I will say that like his numbers on cuts don't look great because of what the finishing is, but he can be a guy who is like a cut assister and that he will cut the weak side zone and then make shots a bit more available and for the guy in the corner because he knows how to move without the basketball. So that's something that might be valuable because for me and my outside perspective of the Celtics, I felt like, especially in that series against the heat that like for as many guys as they have who can dribble pass and shoot, they weren't getting a lot of secondary drives. And when they were getting secondary drives, there wasn't a lot of cutting around those drives. O'Shea can bring that. Yeah. That was on what I've watched from Brissett. I would say that's the thing that sticks out the most as something that I think they can bring is those late cuts. Um, when people are driving in, he, he seems to be really good at finding space. It's a, it's a great point on the athleticism. Like, I don't know if he's not athletic because he looks athletic kind of pushing the pace and attacking closeouts, but that's a great observation is like he's taking off a little bit too far. Cause I'm like, why is he not dunking any of these? Like so many of the finishes just don't look like what's about to happen. Like when I'm watching, I'm like, great, perfect time to attack that closeout, go dunk on that 6'4 guy. And it doesn't quite turn out that way. So that's definitely something that the Celtics fans can look out for. Spoonie? Yeah. What what about defensively? Because I think that's probably where a lot of Celtics fans are looking forward to him because we've got to replace Grant Williams with somebody. And I think on paper, they kind of project as similar defensive players. Like, oh, is not as stout 
as Grant Williams, but he's a pretty strong, sturdy, big wing. Um, my perception of him is he's just kind of a guy out there. Like he's not going to get absolutely roasted, but he's not like a plus defender. But I'd love to hear your insight on him on that end. So it's good to bring up the example of Grant Williams, I think, because there were times during O'Shea's tenure where he would get assigned to defend at the five spot, like what the Celtics would do with Grant and then switch out to the perimeter so that, you know, that way you can keep Sabonis out of ball screens or in the case with Miles this year, they just needed to keep that passive size because they were so small everywhere else that they would cross match that a lot. So he could do that. And I think sometimes when he switched out to the ball, he would be okay. Although he could be a little bit over aggressive and get beat for him where the weakness is, is his body type looks as though he would hold up, but the core strength doesn't always. So like, it really has to be the right four man. Like he's not going to do what Grant Williams did like against Jokic. Like that's, that's not going to happen with those shapers set against a lot of low post threats that's kind of still a weakness of his defensively but he plays with a lot of intensity on that end of the floor and I think his best strength defensively is actually his off-ball defense like as the low man hanging out in tall grass being able to know when to pounce and when not to pounce I think that's probably his best role is when he can play off ball awesome okay yeah well I think yeah I think that he should fit in pretty nicely. I think it would be it would be great to add some guys that can get some turnovers. The Celtics were just dreadful at generating turnovers last Which season. Which is weird because we were so good yeah. the year before too. It just like absolutely disappeared. I think maybe part of it's Rob Williams was just never really right all season. But I, it's just bizarre with Marcus Smart and Tatum's a great defender. It just like it's baffling to me. I've tried to like look at tape and figure it out, and I just cannot. Yeah, but you see all these guys posting defensive highlights on Instagram. That's right. At the moment, yeah. we're going to get so many turnovers. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Um, all right, shifting gears, let's let's focus a little bit on Indiana here um, and the Pacers season. So kind of a weird year, very Halliburton-centric year, 28 and 28 with him last season, and then 7-19 uh, and 19 without. I mean, any team without their best player is going to struggle, but that's pretty stark. Bring in Bruce Brown, which I think a lot of people have thought a, a really savvy pickup will really help kind of the young guys. Um, trade for Obi Toppin, who had flashes when Tibbs actually played him. Draft Jarris Walker. So what are your expectations record-wise, growth-wise for the Pacers next year? Yeah, I mean, when Tyrese and Miles were both available, they played at like a 44 win rate and their net rating was just slightly negative. So that's basically the equivalent of what the Miami Heat did last year. So I think the Pacers are probably going to go to the NBA Finals. I think that's Jeez. where they top out. There you go. <laughs> but, <laughs> PTSD yeah. today with the, the Heat. You fit right in. We're, we're homers <laughs> over here. So I appreciate that very much. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, their defense has been bottom five for two years running now. That's the area that they need to improve the most. So mm-hmm. when you sign Bruce Brown, I think certainly he helps in that regard because of what I said earlier with Tyrese like he's still not somebody that you want defending at the point of attack you mainly like he's good at putting his arms in passing lanes and making some off ball reads but as far as trailing through off ball or on ball screens he's more like an aerial ace type so if you have Bruce Brown you can put him at the point of attack and Benedict Matherin like there's not a lot of things that you can point to right now and say that's a strength of his on defense. Um, his processing off ball isn't great. You also don't really want him doing a lot of screen navigation. If you're going to switch screens, sometimes he can create domino effects or he doesn't veer into the screener. So I think Bruce clarifies some of that, but it also is still going to put more on Benedict Matherin to take on certain assignments because last year they had both Neesmith and Nemhard to do some of that. Now, 
it's going to have to be either Ben or Tyrese. And it makes more sense for it to be Ben because Tyrese is so valuable to what they do in pushing the pace and transition that you don't really want him to be expending a ton of energy on that end of the floor. So I think if they can make even, you know, minimal strides, I, my goal for them is just to be a top 20 defense. Like even if they could just get to like 19, <laughs> like they're in stride for what they are offensively, I think to have a positive net rating and be you yeah. know, a play in team that could potentially be, um, tough to play in in that in that scenario with what their pace is so that's kind of where i see them shaking out like in the seven to ten range maybe sniffing at sixth if something goes wrong for one of the teams that we think definitively will be better than them yeah well i mean the Sixers signed kelly Oubre, so i'm sure that solidifies their uh spot in they're the out of the playoffs <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that could bode well for the pacers ability to, to sneak up there um yeah i think i so saw yeah i was listening to you and tony east kind of talking about matherin and and kind of that that two guard spot um interestingly i think people like the pacers have kind of been pegged as maybe the team like kind of that league pass darling that people like really want to watch and and then you know, sometimes expectations can get a little um, out of whack, especially for a team where you you kind of discussing still trying to find who is the core, like what like obviously Halliburton, um, and then yeah, so who who else is from the from, who else is kind of solidified in that core kind of going forward. Yeah, that's the question that I don't think I really know yet, and that's something that Kevin Pritchard, the president of basketball operations, has spoke to like last year during media day, he said that he'd been asked, like, do you guys have a core? And he said, maybe, maybe not, but we're getting closer. When the season was over, he said, you know, like we're obsessed with finding the right core and like having our foundation. Maybe we need a little bit more foundation than the walls can go up, than the ceiling goes up. So for me, like, I do think that this needs to be the year of Ben. And by the end of the year, they need to be able to say definitively, like he is a critical piece of this core. Cause I don't feel that I personally quite know that just yet at where he tops out at. And, you know, I think he will be a starter day one when the season starts and we'll see how he looks once he's, you know, taking more of that on because he was in the six man role last year. So, um, and then also with Andrew Nemhard, Andrew Nemhard had a terrific summer league and all honesty, Andrew Nemhard had a better summer league than what Benedict Matherin did. I felt in those two games and he went from being a second round pick to a key starter, mainly because of what he did on defense, but um, what he can do in the pick and roll, he's very savvy. He he's his processing of both ends of the floor is good, but you know, when you assign Bruce Brown and you're going to want to play bigger at the four position, that doesn't make a clear spot for Andrew Nemhard to remain as a starter. So if he slides back to the bench and if you're still playing TJ McConnell, it's possible that, you know, he made strides forward. He might actually end up with a smaller role, but um, I'm very high on what Andrew Nemhard's capable of doing. Yeah. I think that's probably surprising to some people that the, the Nemhard, I mean, look, when he hit that buzzer beater against the Lakers in LA, um, that was a that was a beautiful moment for all of Celtics fans. Um, so, would you say that Matherin is kind of like the swing factor, the X factor? Like, if the Pacers are going to push into that six range, potentially, it's going to be because of Matherin, and if they don't, it might also be because of Matherin. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be pretty important because when you look at what their starting lineup was last year, like obviously Tyrese and Miles are locks, but it was Nemar, Neesmith, and Buddy. There's going to be a change in spacing for the Pacers in the half court going from those three to potentially Obi Toppin, Benedict Matherin, and Bruce Brown and what and what that's going to look like. So for Ben, like not only is he going to be going out there and there's like three main things that he needs to improve at. It's his processing as a passer when he gets to the rim. He had one of the lowest pass out rates in the NBA among those who averaged at least five drives. It was like 18 um, percent. And then 
his catch and shoot threes. So he really wants to play out a triple threat and he's good at that. He has a very deceptive first step, but because of that there, he started seeing more short closeouts. He wasn't shooting the ball as well as he was at the beginning of the year. And when he sees the short closeout, he kind of automatically wants to go into his jab package instead of taking the automatic, like in rhythm shot. So he'll double clutch. And I think that contributed to why he wasn't shooting the ball quite as well. And then defensively, he needs to make strides there as well. Cause like I said, he's going to be taking some tougher matchups. If you just consider like, even when they play the Celtics, like most likely it will be a little bit different for them. Cause I would guess that in that particular matchup that Tyrese actually will defend Derek white because you don't want Tyrese guarding Jalen or Jason. So Ben's going to have to guard one of the two of them. And that's going to be different than when he was coming off the bench and when it was, you know, Aaron Neesmith and Andrew Nemhard doing that job. So I think there is quite a bit on his shoulders. And also there's going to be pressure from Buddy Heald off the bench because Buddy and Tyrese have terrific chemistry. That was the number one assist combination in the NBA last year on made threes. Tyrese is the engine in transition, but Buddy's very much an extension of it. So if things aren't going well, I could see that there might be a temptation to be like, mm, let's just put Buddy back out there in that yeah. Or Nemhard, man. Like Carlisle seems like the type of coach that's just like, you know what? This guy knows how to play basketball. Yeah. I'm going to roll with him. But Matherin kind of reminds me of like a younger Tatum in that like, he kind of can disrupt the flow of the offense because like you said, like he catches the ball and then he's like, okay, I'm going to scope this out a little bit. I'm going to hit him with a jab step. I'm going to cross over and I'm going to get into, you know, get to the rim or something like that. But um, what are you most excited for this upcoming season for the Pacers? Like, what are you keeping your eye on? Maybe we'll just take Matherin out of it since we kind of already talked about him. I think I'm excited to see them. It's going to sound funny, but I'm like, I just want to see multiple defenders on the floor at once. And I think that they're (laughs) putting some of those lineups out there. Also kind of seeing just somebody at the four spot, that battle between Obi Toppin and Jairus Walker, and who's going to slide in better with Miles Turner. I think some of the reason why they are deemed a league pass darling is because they do play at such a fast pace. And certainly I think that Tyrese and Obi are going to be electric in the open floor. Um, Obi Toppin has a chance to be a breakout candidate going from what a situation was with the Knicks where, you know, Tibbs wants to play with a rim protector on the court at all times. He wasn't going to play small with Julius and and Toppin out there at the same time. And Julius is obviously going to get those minutes ahead of Toppin. He comes over here. He has a real chance to be a starter right off the bat. Miles Turner spaces out the three. The pace is much faster with the Pacers than it is in New York. So, if he is going to have an opportunity to break out, this is probably his best bet. And I know that he's already talked that he said to Rick, that Rick Carlisle's told him like he's going to play around the basket more. He, he's not even in his entire career. He's attempted 27 shots as the role man. 27. Yeah. Wow. Dude. Wow. What's this? His fourth year? Yeah. yeah going to his fourth year. The only he- time he rolls is if they like, if they ran a double drag, you would see Toppin and Mitchell Robinson both roll on certain possessions. Like no one pops. How was their offense so good? They were like number three or something. It makes no sense, Knicks. Because this year, Obi Toppin was attempting more of his shots as threes than ever. He was screening yeah. less than ever and he had fewer paint touches than ever. And I mean, they, they needed him to be a quick trigger three-point shooter when he got opportunities to play. And to his credit, he tried to be that. Yeah. I just don't think that's his ideal role. <laughs> no. Yeah, I feel like, yeah, I feel like he kind of got caught in the, like, they went from developing to trying to win now. And Tibbs was just not really able to figure out that balance. And I don't I don't feel like he ever really got a chance to actually show all the different things that he could do. Can I try being a short roll guy, please? Like let's like can I see what I'm actually capable of? And I think he's really gonna get that that chance in Indiana. And I think that's for me. One of the things I'm most excited to, to, to watch on the paces is Halliburton and Obi in the open court. Like Halliburton just has, you know, 
he's like a dinosaur in the NBA in the way that he plays point guard. And uh, to watch guys like that is just it's just super fun. And like when you're flicking around league pass, uh, a lot of the teams look kind of similar on a night to night basis. And the Pacers are a team that definitely look different to me um, in the way that they play. Um, but yeah, all right. We appreciate all of the uh, all of the uh, Pacers insight. But now you're gonna you're gonna test you for uh, see how you can endear yourself to the uh, first of the floor fans. But please tell the truth. Where are you on the <laughs> uh, on the uh, Porzingis Marcus Smart trade Porzingis fit? Yeah, I mean, it feels to me from my outsider's perspective that this is a bet on wanting more offensive versatility for the reason that I said before, that like it just felt in that heat series with the heat pressing up on them at the three-point line as much as they did and how many, like I did look up that the Celtics were second in the NBA last year and, and contested three-point attempts. So yeah, you need to have other ways to attack. And I think that's what Brad Stevens is probably thinking here, that Porzingis can pop, he can roll, he can do a little bit in the post against a switch. Maybe he can do some facilitation and like blind pig actions where like, I don't generally think, I think that the idea of a stretch five in the NBA can be somewhat of a myth. And maybe that's because I've watched a lot of Miles Turner and this is not me trying to be a knock on Miles Turner per se, but just that like when he goes into the pick and pop, that's not necessarily like most fives don't follow him out there. It's just him getting free points. And the case of Kristaps Porzingis, like teams do follow him out there. They do stay closer to him in part because he takes a lot of deep threes and also, like he's just a quicker trigger shooter than what Miles is. So you might at least see a stunt or, like I said, if he is playing with his back to the basket, I think that there is going to be more gravity to stay attached to him so that, you know, maybe Jalen Brown's getting a back cut, which I know that was a popular thing between Marcus Smart and Jalen mm-hmm. Brown. But it seems like Christoph Sprzingis can probably do that, too, in addition to adding other versatility in places. So, you know, it's a tough one. Like, I feel like it's either going to be that this is the one missing piece that puts them over the top or it's going to fail miserably. Like, I don't feel like there's <laughs> yep. going to be any in between here. Like, it's going to be one of those two things. That's yeah. like exactly where we came out on it. Yeah, I I think that's, you've, you've nailed it. It's the offensive yeah. versatility piece. The reason the Celtics have not won the title in the last two seasons is because the offense has just completely fallen apart yep. in the most high leverage moments in both the Heat series, honestly, both years, even the, the year they beat the Heat and went to the finals. That Warriors series was a freaking disaster um, on offense, and then again against the Heat, it's just it's just a weapon that they haven't had like that before. You know, the yeah, the Horford's probably right up there as far as willingness um, goes. You know, for for a stretch fives, but Porzingis is like in the Carl Anthony Towns category of how many threes he's getting up and how much how willing he's to, is to shoot, and then his ability to attack closeouts like that's you know just something that they. Do not have with Al Horford yep. and Rob Williams. And that's a key piece there too, because I did look up on Second Spectrum's data. It showed that Christoph Sprzingis saw full closeouts on 60% of his shots. So and and being able to attack that, because like how many free throws did Al Horford actually attempt last year? Like it, it was it was not Two? many. It's not many. <laughs> it was like halfway through the season and he had taken like five or something <laughs> yeah, like yeah. insane like that. But real quick on the tightly contested shots. Yeah. The Jays, I'm just on NBA.com's data, but not the very tight because those are super low numbers, but like the two to four feet. The Jays took 352 tightly contested threes, which would, if they were a team, would be the eighth most in the league. So, I mean, they took way more tightly contested threes, just those two, than most of the teams in the league. So, yeah, it just highlights the Porzingis point. Um, okay, yeah. go ahead, Jake. Or you can say I was something. just going to say, like, we 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 try to theorize on how to fix Jason Tatum's three point percentage because it's kind of dropped to thirty five over the past two seasons, and like, it's 
it's the t- it's Bad. the contested threes. It's just yeah. like he's taking two too many two attempts too many that are too contested when he should either be driving the closeout, or making a quicker play, or trying to get to the line. And like just that alone, I think we think is how the percentage kind of goes back up to the thirty seven thirty eight range. Yeah, it's just exchanging some of that because I mean, when you think about it too, like I think ultimately they're still going to need, and it sounds crazy to say because both of them are so talented, but like more individual development from each of them in specific ways. But like when you have Przingis out there to to spread the floor more, maybe like some of what Jalen Brown's issues are with his left hand and his his handle aren't as pronounced when the driving lane is wider. How dare oh, yeah. you, Caitlin? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you're right, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. The, the truth does hurt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah um, I, think that, I think that's fair. Yeah. Um, okay, before we let you go, you've been very gracious with your time, so we very much appreciate that. But until you can leave, the ultimate question. I'm nervous. Other than now. the Pacers, who's, your, who's the favorite to win the title? Do you think the Celtics win the NBA title this year? Of course, other than the Pacers, you already told us they're going to the finals. But <laughs> uh, I think I have to go with the Denver Nuggets. <laughs> Right. Okay. okay. That's, All right. That's this is over. See, that's, no, that's a good answer. Actually, but from yeah, the Eastern Conference, Bucks, Philly, Miami, because um, I, I, I kind of tend to feel the same way. Like if the Nuggets are pretty much the same minus Bruce Brown, uh, I still think they're the best team in the league as well. And yeah. the Celtics are going to have a lot of trouble beating them. But um, for, the Eastern Conference to me has kind of become a fair it's bit open. weaker. Yeah, it's yeah. very much yeah. open. Because the Milwaukee Bucks are a big question mark. Like, I don't like to put this much emphasis on coaching, but they are having a a first-time head coach. I don't know what types of changes they're going to make. It is an older roster. Um, But with Boston, it's like, I'm kind of interested to see, like, we didn't really talk about this with with Porzingis, but how they envision him defensively, I think, will be very (laughs) curious as well. Especially coming off this plantar fasciitis issue, because there was times when the Pacers played the Wizards last year where, like, if Porzingis was playing with Gafford, they would use Porzingis as a weak side roamer and put him on Nemhard. But maybe with the foot injury, maybe you manage him a little bit easier if you're using him in drop coverage, and then maybe you're using Al Horford to switch on screens and, and do some of those things. And then if you're using... Przingis and drop coverage, something that I'm familiar with with Malcolm Brogdon is that Malcolm Brogdon is a much better switch defender than he is chasing over on screens at the point of attack. Yeah. You kind of get dusted there. So I'm kind of curious to see how the defense will come together because this is like, it's a play for offensive versatility, but like a lot of the Celtics players talked about, like we need to regain our yeah. defensive identity from what they were under Yudoka. So how they use Przingis and how they envision is linked because this isn't going to be a defense built around like Marcus Smart getting under people's skin and Marcus Smart like skirting screens. It's going to be guiding people into Przingis, whether he's a weak side rim protector or a dropper. So I'm kind of interested to see how the defense will play out, how his health plays out. But I think if I was pressed to say right now in the Eastern Conference, I would probably lean to Boston. There we go. That's what we um, like but to yeah, hear. I, I think, yeah, that's been one of the fun things to talk about is how we see the defense working with Porzingis. Um, he was really good defensively for the Wizards last season, you know, in drop coverage in space. I think last year he's been underrated um, in that perspective as well. We're not sure what the starting lineup's going to be, but I think like the the defensive ceiling of this team is Robert Williams and Porzingis with Derek White. Jalen and Jason, that's going to give you probably. I mean, even feels wrong to say just because Al Horford was was still so good defensively all last season. But you know, with Rob and Al and Porzingis, you know, Rob can be the weak side roamer with Porzingis playing and drop, or we can play Al and drop, and Porzingis can play that roaming role. I do think that 
there's a lot of versatility. You can play him in both drop and and that weak side roaming role. I think they're going to try both. Brad Stevens hinted at even trying to play Porzingis at the three. I'm not sure if that's real. Wow. That, yeah. Uh, and <laughs> you that, crazy son like, of a you, bitch. You go, you go J- Jason Tatum at the at the two, and then all of a sudden you just have like the most giant lineup of all time on the court at the same time. But um, yeah, I think defensively that's, yeah, that's going to be really interesting to see. But uh, Boston's going to the finals and we're going to age another five years after losing in seven games to the Nuggets, which after going seven games against the Bucks and the Heat again in the second round in the conference finals. And I can't wait to do it and probably lose to the Pacers twice again in the regular season. Because <laughs> that <course>. seems to be- <laughs> Of course. Because <laughs> that seems to be a bit of a trend as well. But Caitlin... We really do appreciate your time. Like, um, obviously, um, the comments agree. Um, one of the, the legends in basketball media um, coming up right now. So we really appreciate your your time, everybody. Um, basketball, she wrote. Is there anything? In, uh, is that's the blog and the Patreon uh, that Caitlin writes? Is there anything else you'd like to plug? While you're no, here? I think that's about it. Just my Twitter handle sitting here. It's AC, at c two underscore Cooper. Yeah. That's the link to the Patreon, and people can check it out over there. I got a mailbag coming out soon, later this week, and then I'm just doing player preview pods with Tony East over at Locked On Pacers. Yeah, those are those are excellent. We're, I was catching up on yes. those, doing my homework for for today. Um, but yeah, we really appreciate it. Spoonie. It's been a pleasure as always. Um, and Thank until next time, go Celtics.